Go ahead and have a seat. Um, the kids can go ahead and jet out. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to John 8. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Uh, this is the third message in John 8, and we're going to look at a debate. Okay, so I figured to prep, here would be a good thing. Um, I want you to have a debate with the person next to you on your opinion on red light cameras. Ready, set, go. Okay, that's enough. It's going to get out of hand. <laughs> Okay, so some of you may be like, you got real nervous in the moment, you're like, I don't know what I think, I don't know what I think of red light cameras, like, should I know what I think? And some of you are like, oh, I know exactly what I think, like, this is the breaking of the law, um, I'm not here to argue one way or another, um, but today as we look at this debate, really between Jesus and these religious leaders, Maybe you're going to resonate because maybe you're like, I love debate. Maybe like I was on the debate team. Like I owned everyone in debate. And some of you are like, I don't like debate at all. Um, but I think it's really interesting the way Jesus navigates this conversation. Um, because if there's one group of people that love to debate, it's religious people that think they know it all and think that everyone else is wrong, Right? And we see that all throughout the Gospels. And we're going to see it today as we walk through this text. Um, but I want to prepare you because here's what's going to happen. The whole time, okay, one of the important things in a discussion between you and another individual, if you're trying to debate an issue, is that you understand the position that the other person is coming from. Otherwise, you're debating this like straw man, right? Um, so... One of the problems that we're going to see as Jesus engages with these religious leaders is they don't understand what he's saying at all. And they throw arguments at him that are from a whole different perspective than what Jesus is arguing. Why? Because Jesus is arguing from a heavenly perspective. The religious leaders, what are they arguing from? Finite mind, what's on earth, what they see, what they know. So that kind of gets confused a little bit. But here's where Jesus begins in chapter 8, verse 31. With, before I read it, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask this question, and I want you to think about it here. Is here's where he's, he begins the debate. Is what is an authentic disciple of Jesus? What defines an authentic disciple of Jesus? What do you think? Obedience. Do what he says. Anybody else? No debaters here? <laughs> Look at verse 31. Let's see what Jesus says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had just believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you Free. So he brings up this interesting verbiage 
um, that is, when we first look at it, it looks like a matter of obedience. And, and yes, it includes that, absolutely. But it really, at the heart of discipleship is this word abide. Is when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Okay, so that really what, what Jesus begins this whole argument with, he's just had this encounter where many people have professed their belief in him, and so he's going to immediately press him, okay, if you're going to believe in me, here's what that looks like. Here's what that means. You're going to abide in me. And in the truth of my Father, and all that he set out to do, and all that he's called me to do, okay? So here's what it is. The proof of salvation is this staying power. Okay, if proof of, proof of salvation was based in like the fact that you're here today, like wouldn't that be interesting? Because what happens, would that, make, would that have any effect on what happens in 30 years? But what Jesus is saying is that if you abide, okay, now let me cross-reference a couple things. You're familiar with John 15, 5. Jesus used this word abide numerous times. John loves the word here in his gospel. In John 15, 5, what does Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me or abides in me, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, it's the same thing that's referenced in Acts chapter 17, where it says that in him we live and move and have our being. It's that apart from him, I cannot function. I have no direction. I have no hope. And we have our own direction. We can come up with our own man-made hope. Okay, but in him we live and move and have our being. And then there's another interesting verse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. It says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You're like, what? wait a second. That kind of confuses me. Put your faith in Christ. You believe for salvation, you're saved. Well, the scripture also says that if you endure, it's proof of what, was, what happened in the beginning. Well, here's, what's, here's what's crazy. is That same word, endure, is the same Greek word, meno, that means abide. Listen, it's, it's an invitation to, to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to live with Jesus, to be in relationship with Jesus, to remain. Okay? It's why I think Eugene Peterson, he wrote this book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's like, we're just going to keep pressing on, we're going to keep pressing on, we're going to keep pressing on. And what Jesus gets to the heart at as he sets out in this initial debate is this idea of freedom. That when the gospel, that when we abide in Christ, what happens is, is the gospel sets us free from, from the consequences, from the punishment of sin. Okay? That it transforms our heart and transforms our life to live out a life of repentance and a life of faith. Listen, that doesn't mean we're perfect. Because you're like, well, wait, wait a second. Like, I don't know what just happened, but <laughs> you all do because it's like everyone's looking over there. But to walk in this relationship with Christ, 
R.C. Sproul, we'll look at him a couple times this morning. He says this, it's not the profession that gets you into the kingdom, it's the possession. We must possess what we profess. What are we, what are we possessing? Because we can say all kinds of things. But listen, unless we possess the person of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what we profess. Because Jesus says that we're going to stand before him in heaven and you're going to say, we did all these things in your name. We said all of these great things. And what he's going to say, you didn't possess me. You didn't know me. You didn't have relationship with me. You didn't abide in me. Abiding in Christ, it's this daily wrestling with belief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's daily wrestling with, I'm not, we're not, this isn't like, if you're perfect, right? No, not at all. We're made perfect in Christ, and he's pushing us every day to live that out, but we don't. And he beckons us back to him, to abide in him, to return to him, to find his grace, to find his forgiveness. Look at verse 33. Look at how they respond. Anytime in a conversation someone gets super defensive, uh, it kind of shows a sign, right? Um, verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they jump up with this defense mechanism. Like, oh, you're not going to tell us that we need to be set free. You're not going to tell us that we need to come to this position of we're in bondage and we need to be set free. Because here's what, here's what they're confusing. They're confusing biology with, with spirituality. Okay? The biology makeup, like, who's your daddy? Abraham. Okay? Could you have a better daddy than Abraham? Well, you know what? All of us, you know who our daddy is? Abraham. Right? Okay, so like the, the, the spiritual heritage that's set down from the biblical lineage. Okay, what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. When it comes to the things of God and the kingdom of God, what the Jews, what the religious leaders are wanting to argue is that because of their spiritual heritage, their biological makeup, they're good to go. I don't need to be set free. He's like, yeah, you, do, you, don't, you don't get it. Because they're, they're and, and here again, they're arguing there's two different things. Jesus is thinking heavenly, spiritually. Right? These guys are like physically. They're thinking entirely physically and biologically. Okay? Um, we all know that spiritual heritage says very little about present maturity. Right? Just because you have a stout spiritual heritage doesn't mean you're presently walking in maturity. No. Because Jesus is going to press him. Here, continue, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. That's a concerning statement. We'll come back to that. Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because of my words, because my word finds no place in you. 
I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not know what you have heard from your father. Now, he says this interesting statement. When you read the Bible, you should come to statements that make you concerned. Right? You should come to statements where you're like, oh, what does that mean? Like scratching your head. Um, because it, it says, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Okay, so it's like, well, what does that do with our position as the righteous people of God? That Didn't it just say that the son, he'll set you free, you'll be free indeed? You're like, I committed sin this morning. Like perpetually, maybe in my heart, even now, wrestling with the unbelief that's present. So the verbiage here, um, the word commits... Some of you might see the word in your Bible, practices. It's this present active, this ongoing action. Okay, this really this, it owns my life. It, it continues to dominate who I am. Okay, like my life is governed by sin. Okay, now for the people of God, that shouldn't be true of us. Should we wrestle with sin? Yeah, that's part of the the growing in Christ. Okay? And might there be, like in the life of David, moments or seasons of unbelief where in our unbelievable, willful disobedience, we walk from the Lord and God in His grace and still beckons us back and somehow calls that man a man after his own heart? Does that not show the unbelievable graciousness of God? But here, in this text, we see when it's talking about practicing sin, it's this regular, ongoing. Because in Romans, Paul uses this illustration of we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to the kingdom, we're slaves to to God. Um, Let's look at uh, Romans 6. Paul writes this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let, no, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So what happens when we present our members As unrighteousness, what do we do? His spirit beckons us back to remain in him. Beckons us back to be people of repentance. To be slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. So he's like, you're, you're living this contradictory life. Okay? You're claiming that the hope you have is in your father, yet you're trying to kill me. Do you know your father was the biggest proponent of my father? 
You know, Abraham was the biggest proponent of the kingdom of God. But yet you're trying to kill me. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were living this contradictory life as if they were perfect, as if all things were good. Based on look at us, we're good boys and girls that always do what we're supposed to do, including destroy the injustice of Jesus in our presence. And Jesus comes back and he attacks their, their, their flaw in their thinking about what really sets them free. Not just Abraham and a biological makeup. Verse 41. You are doing what your father did. Actually, let me back up to 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We, were, we have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, it just gets really intense. Okay? Um, because all of a sudden the conversation, probably one of the most intense conversations that we've seen in this debate between the religious leaders... And Jesus, because what happens? What what does Jesus say the truth of these people are? Who do they live for? Who does he say their father is? The devil. I mean, like, those are fighting words, right? Are you going to say, my father's the, like, we seek to live for the devil? Like, these are like the elite religious people. Like, the, the authority on spiritual life. But here's what's, here's what's amazing when Jesus is engaging in this conversation and in this discussion, what is he doing? Is he getting defensive about how they're talking to him or what they're saying to him? No, what, is, what does he do? He comes right out and he says, it's, it's not about me. It's not about who I am. It's not about what you say about me. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here I came out of my own accord, but he sent me. So he's like, you and I, when we face opposition, when we face conversations with people, do you have a tendency to defend yourself? Here's what you need to know. There's no, and there's nothing inherently wrong with defending yourself, so I don't want you to hear that. But here's what you need to know. Your biggest defense and your greatest defense is the cross. And God standing up for you. Okay, there could be this tendency, like it's Christians, that we have to defend God. And I'm not saying we don't be people that stand up for the things of God and stand up for 
the truth of the Bible and the truth of Scripture. But God's a big God, and God's in control. And God isn't fully dependent on us, you know, keeping his flag in the ground, because if his flag isn't in the ground, all of a sudden he's, he's going down. No. But your and I's greatest defense is in our ability to navigate a conversation and defend ourselves. Even Jesus is like, I'm not here because of me. I'm here because I've been sent by God. I've been sent by my Father. He's got my back. But these people, again, they don't get it. I love what R.C. Sproul says here. Look at this quote. Fallen man does not come to the word of God because he has no taste for the things of God. By nature, the things of God are foreign to him. He doesn't want God in his thinking. He refuses to have anything to do with him. He has no desire for the things of God. By nature, his desires are only wicked continually. That's why God has to change the disposition of a person's heart before he will ever respond to the word of Christ. The Spirit has to set him free. Do you know that faith is a gift from God? The ability for you right here to have affection for Jesus Christ is God's mercy on your life and my life to see him as valuable and to desire him. Because the scripture says that we're, we have no desire for God apart from God. Another thing Sproul says is by nature we are Satan's willing slaves. I don't think that you and I sitting here would want to like, yeah, it's, it's me. I mean, there's people that way, I, I, I guess. Um, but by nature we're Satan's willing slaves volunteering in the kingdom of darkness. By nature we love the darkness rather than the light because we want to do does, we want to do the desires of Satan. That's what sin is. Sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our heart to do the will of the enemy of God now. Because those are the kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of darkness. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. What is that? That's Satan the kingdom of darkness, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You're like, well, I'm glad I came today. That's such great news. <laughs> but the verse goes on. It says, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he saved us. He called us out of that. So Jesus here in this argument is really throwing out these claims that you're not really following your father Abraham because you're not living like your father Abraham lived. You're not holding to the truth of what he held. And you're not living like you're following God for the same exact reasons. You're not holding, your behavior doesn't show that. Your heart condition doesn't show that. But he makes this really interesting statement in verse 47. Look down at your Bible and look at what it says. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So one of the evidences of salvation that Jesus brings up, even in the midst of this dialogue, 
is the ability for us to know the voice of God and hear the voice of God. Okay? To be people that the Spirit of God dwells in, and when He presses us, we recognize that. We understand that. Okay? That's an evidence of salvation. Why does He bring that up? It's because He's saying, That's not you. He's pressing on these religious people that are majoring in their spiritual heritage and in their behavior, not in their relationship with God. But they're clueless. They don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying because their minds are earthly. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, so it just got really fun here. Okay, so, so just a minute ago, what happened? Jesus says, your father is the devil. And then they're like, well, two can play this game. Not only are you the devil, you're a Samaritan. Okay, Samaritans, one, had nothing. I'm sorry, Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. They were unclean. They were unwelcome in their presence. You don't even pass through their town. You take the detour all the way around. They're outcasts. We saw that in John chapter 4. Here, they fight back to Jesus to say, you're a Samaritan, and what you're saying, you're demonic. You know, they're probably grabbing their friend. Hey guys, we got another one here, another demon-possessed guy. Come here, check him out. He's saying nonsense. Here's what I think we learned from this. One, you ever have conversations with people where they just don't understand what you're saying? Do you ever have conversations with people about the things of God? Maybe it's just your, like your life seeking to live out the mission of God in your life. And people who aren't spirit-filled... Okay? They don't understand. Like, like, maybe it's like, like, I remember all kinds of pushback I'd get from, like, going to other countries to share the gospel. Oh, it's dangerous over there, and, like, you don't, you shouldn't go over there, and, like, they don't understand. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, th- there's a means by which obedience isn't a pursuit of your safety, but obedience is a pursuit of fulfilling the will of God, that I'm safe in Him. Okay? And so, what I think we learn here is that, listen, you and I are going to rub shoulders with people all day long as we seek to live out the truth of the gospel and the mission of God everywhere we go, where we work, where we live, where we shop, everywhere we go. And there's going to be conversations that you should have or as you're talking about your life and how you're living out your life for the glory of God, whatever that looks like for you, that people are like perplexed. You know what I'm saying? Like there should be a sense where people don't get you. 
You know, hear this, because I think this is really, really important. Okay, now, the reason why this is so important is because, listen, if, if your life and my life as God's people, and maybe you're, not, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, so let me explain to you why we maybe seem weird or maybe seem different. or Let me explain. Listen, the world needs a hope different than the present reality of what they have. Okay? We know the hope, and we seek to live in the hope as God's people. Okay? So if our life just continually, perpetually looks like what everyone else is doing, okay, that's not Jesus. Okay? Jesus lived among people, but people were perplexed by him. Part of it was because he's the son of God, right? I mean, you're like, come on. Jesus. Of course people are perplexed by him. Okay? But we're to model our lives after him. Right? So our lives should leave people scratching their head wondering, man, why does she serve the way she does? Why does this person care about me so much? Like, no one else does that. None of my friends do that, and I hardly know this person. That makes sense? Why do they give so faithfully? Listen, people won't understand the decisions that we make. Is it your responsibility to make sure that every person understands why you obey God the way he's called you to obey him? No. No. God's your judge. Unless it's morally against the scriptures. Okay, because Jesus faced immense opposition. Why? Because he lived countercultural. He lived different. Because his mindset and his mission wasn't based in an earthly reality. His mindset and his mission was based in in a heavenly hope and a heavenly reality. And another thing this shows is the greatness of God. Okay? That, you know what? I'll be be the first to admit. There's there's aspects to what it means to obey God. And we can all attest to this. That we don't even fully understand why we do what we do. And why God calls us to things. Like forgive the person that wronged you. Like I don't want to do that. It shows the greatness of God. Look at verse 49. (laughs) See how Jesus answers this debate (laughs) of being demonic Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. You know, this isn't the first time, nor it will be the last, that they, they accuse him of being demonic. It's actually a common accusation that's, that's pushed on Jesus. So if anyone thinks you're demonic, welcome to the club. Because that's, that's common for Jesus. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory There is one who seeks it 
and he is the judge. There, there again, exactly what I was getting back at before. Jesus isn't here defending himself. Living in defense of his position and his views. He says, ultimately, God's my judge. And I'm going to live out what he's called me to live. I'm going to go where he's called me to go. I'm going to do what he's called me to do. And it might not make sense to the unbelieving world. And maybe even the, the believing world on some levels. But my job isn't to defend myself because I don't seek my own glory, Jesus says. 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is where it gets good. The Jews said to him, yep, possessed. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Thank you for proving our point. Because you know our father Abraham? He died. Boom. But you didn't know that. So did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Like they, they, they're, they're again, scratching their head. Who is this guy? Their inability to fathom heavenly realities. Jesus responds, Are you greater than our father Abraham? Or 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Again, his authority grants him credibility. And he rests in that. We rest in our authority as as our Heavenly Father and what he thinks. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. There's some language that that they don't get. Because did Abraham and Jesus live at the same time? Is God bound by time? No. What's the day he's talking about? The day of the Lord. Heaven. The means by which Abraham would see Christ. I know him. If I, if I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Huh? Yeah. (laughs) It's profound. So what do they do? They picked up stones and tried to throw them at him. 
Sounds childish, right? But literally, they were trying to kill him. Okay, so here's what I wrestled with all week, even this morning. Like, what does this mean? Like, who, who cares? And we had this crazy exchange, and it's like this cool debate, and we watch out like, the, you know, back and forth. And we're like, why does this matter? Here's why I think it matters. Is one, I think that we have to come to grips with the truth of God being way bigger than we can know and fathom and understand. And that when we come to the scriptures, we cannot fully fathom what God is saying apart from the Spirit of God who gives us discernment and opens our minds and our eyes to see. And like Christ, we're seeking to live our life like Jesus Christ. Listen, we're going to come across conversations and people that clash, that don't understand. And we're going to face opposition. I heard one guy say rather boldly that if you don't face opposition in your life, in following Christ, then you're probably not a Christ follower. What is he saying? He's saying that if we're to model our lives after the person and work of Jesus Christ, there's people that didn't like him. Why? Because he was a jerk? No. Because he lived countercultural. He loved the outcast. How incredible is that? He loved, like people with leprosy, it's like, get them out. He touched them. Listen, do we live that way? Listen, not the argumentative Christian that's going to convince everyone of their wrongdoing. Do we live in such a way that's grace-filled, that's truth-filled, that's not the abuse of our freedom, but the resting in the freedom that we have in Christ, that what others think of us isn't what's up on the top of the mountain for us, but what God thinks of us and what He's called us to through his word and through the Holy Spirit. It's the life of Christ modeled for us. And it's challenging and it's probing. And as you think about this, really my challenge is this. Abide in him. Abide in him. This is how you'll know if you're my disciple. You abide. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for enduring the atrocities you endured while you were on earth for setting a model for us to be disciples, people that were our lives are perpetually seeking to live like you. God, we're not very good at that. Um, But would you help us take a step towards that even today? Would you help us 
not seek to shape our lives around the approval of man and the understanding of man, but the approval of our King. As we engage with those around us, God, help our lives be shaped more like you. In Christ's name.